When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Get ready, Ohio. FanDuel, America's number one sports book, is coming to the Buckeye State. And to kick things off, you can get started with $100 in free bets as an early sign-up bonus. Plus, when you sign up today with promo code OHIOFD, you'll be all set when FanDuel goes live in Ohio. Then you can bet on all your favorite teams in all your favorite sports with $100 in free bets. Just download FanDuel's top-rated sportsbook app. It's safe, secure, and super easy to use. Ohio, this is your chance to get in on the action. Join today with promo code OHIOFD. Make every moment more with FanDuel, official sportsbook partner of the NFL. 21 or older and present in Ohio. Bonus issued in non-withdrawable free bets that expire seven days after FanDuel accepts its first real money sports wager in Ohio. one Unique user identity verification required. Offer ends on the go-live date. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Introducing the Lowe's List for Innovation. While our aisles are filled with innovative products, we've selected our favorites just for you. Like the exclusive Whirlpool washer with industry-first two-in-one removable agitator. We love this washer because you can customize any load. And with other smart features to streamline your laundry routine, this product is a must-have for families. Shop the full Lowe's list of top picks at Lowe's.com. Lowe's, home to any budget, home to any possibility. U.S. only. Some cars are comfy on the inside but don't have power on the outside. And some cars have the horsepower but none of the comfort. I used to think there weren't any cars that were the total package. But that all changed when I got my Honda SUV. It's rugged and sophisticated. And right now, Honda has deals on the entire Honda SUV lineup. CRV, HRV, Pilot, Passport, you name it. So if you're looking for a car that's the total package, the only place you'll find it is at your local Honda dealer. Hurry before they're all gone. All right. It's another film study. This is another one that's audio and video. Again, the video is over at filmstudybaltimore.com along with a bunch of slide decks that go with it. 
So if you're going over to the website at the same time as listening to this, it helps out a lot. Ken McCusick, how are you doing? Life's good, Josh. How about you? I'm doing well. I'm, uh, it's fun that sports are back on TV right now, so it gives us something as we continue to wait for football season. Did the Orioles score a run yet tonight? They were still shut out in that second game, working on three straight shutouts at, at, when I last checked. You know, I was trying to be all positive and not that we record this after the Orioles go 23 innings against the, uh, against the Marlins and score one run over the 23 innings of three games. So, uh, no, we're recording this. Uh, the evening after the doubleheader against the Marlins where the Orioles scored one run. Yes. All right. And so, we have material that is timeless in its nature. Actually, it's, it's timely, but right. it's also timeless in terms of its, uh, uh, how uh, applicable it will be in the future. All right. Well, let's get, let's get Dan Rees on the, on the call and let's talk about football and stuff that will still matter when the Orioles are eventually good in a few years. <laughs> Sounds good. How's it going, guys? Hey, Dan. How's it going, buddy? Uh, we had you on very once good. before to talk a little bit about the Ravens' success in running the ball on first down and how that still remarkably had resulted in a very high series success rate. So that was your last presentation. But right. since then, you've been working on another project. You want to tell us about it? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, so thanks for having me back on. Uh, so the project that uh, we're going to talk through today was actually a competition um, that I participated in uh, with uh, Sports Info Solutions. Um, they, uh, they offered a, a, a contest where you could go through uh, some, some, uh, some data that, um, a lot, that normally you don't have access to and kind of try and answer a couple questions that an NFL team might try to, um, might try to answer. Uh, this this competition was also uh, benefiting the United Negro Ch College Fund, so it was a kind of a, a great cause, a great opportunity to kind of test out my uh, coding skills, and also a great opportunity to kind of dive into data that you don't normally get to play around with. So, so it was kind of a great all-around thing. So, what today we're going to dive into is uh, some of the analysis that I did on kind of the NFL-wide. And then also kind of dive into uh, how it applies to uh, the Ravens specifically. So, S sounds like fun, Dan. I've already heard you go through this presentation. Uh, I'd encourage people not to be, uh, you know, intimidated by it. But it is—it's—it's it's a very deep dive into a, uh, a topic of great interest to defensive football fans in particular. Yeah. So let's uh, ready to jump right into it. Absolutely. All right. So the questions uh, that were to be addressed by the, the competition, there were three of them. Uh, the three questions were, uh, which is the most valuable defensive line position? Uh, what is the distribution of the talent at each of these positions? And then what scenarios would impact defensive line position value? So in this presentation, we're kind of going to dive into all three. Uh, we're going to primarily focus on the, on the first two because that's kind of where a lot of the meat of the, the study went and a lot of what you can look at for uh, how it applies to the Ravens. So for the first one, we're looking at the most, value, uh, the most valuable position. First, we need to define what a defensive line position is. So that's the first question that uh, the contest kind of let you define on your own. Um, and then the second is how you want to define value. Um, you know, there are lots of different ways how you can determine what position or what players are valuable. 
And so once we define position and value, then we're able to answer what defensive line position is most valuable. When we go into the second one, we're gonna talk about um, how the talent is, is in those positions. Again, there's lots of ways to measure the talent. Uh, the two ways we're gonna primarily be looking at it is uh, through opportunity and through performance. And the third thing that we're gonna look into with the scenarios that were impacted the positional value, we're just gonna talk through a couple of, uh, of possibilities that, you know, that could, could impact the value in real, uh, real life. So. So, you know, feel free to jump in with questions throughout, as I know you will. So I will. Uh, we'll, we'll be going through it. But um, so just a little quick background on the data that that uh, that was used. Uh, SIS, which is the, the company that did the competition. Um, the data was 2019 uh, real NFL data, and it, rep it represented weeks nine through 17. So kind of the second half or so of 2019. So we'll see that in our analysis and then also keep that in mind when we look at the Ravens specific analysis, that's kind of what it represents. Um, the data included a lot of different fields. Some of the fields that we'll talk about are the roster position, on-field position, and technique alignment. Technique alignment is something that I use heavily, so we'll dive into that in a, uh, a lot more in a little bit. A couple of the decisions that I made right away on looking at the database, uh, I excluded um, anyone who was aligned off ball. So anyone that was off, um, off the line of scrimmage basically. So the data pr was provided in the format where there was a row per play per uh, player on the, on the defensive line. So, you know, if there were four defensive linemen on a given play, there were actually four records for that play. So, are they where they give you XY data on the field? Is that how it was given to you, or because it's I know the other contest, the NFL Big Data Bowl, is done based on that, or was it done based on they told you who was nope. in the line of scrimmage? Yeah, yeah. So this the SIS uh, data was just based off of alignment at the snap. So um, there wasn't any um, kind of GPS uh, XY coordinates. Um, you know that's used for some other big competitions, the big bowl data is the, or big data bowl or something like that, um, is the big one that, that, uh, that just recently, you know, has been getting a lot of press and, and is a real popular one. But that, that feeds right from the NFL. So that's, they've got some really good data there. And SIS has great data, but not quite as great as the real NFL or actual NFL data. So, so this, when we talk about the technique, it's, it's at, at snap, um, the, their position. So, um, also we excluded QB spikes. Um, so that's another, you know, clear play we could exclude since they weren't that weren't meaningful in determining value. Um, the other things, other things that we'll see that I use data from that I want to kind of give a, a recognition to is NFL scraper. Um, you know, you'll see this a lot on, on Twitter. It's really heavily used, um, for, a lot of available data, a lot of uh, free data. So it's, it's, it's a great resource. And in this particular case, I used it for expected points and win, pro win probability models. Um, so that's kind of where I got uh, the functions for that and, and the data from, from that. So um, can we take a moment to stop and talk about expected points and expected wins models? For a second, yeah, and the sure. difference. Okay, so we've we've this topic has come up occasionally on the pod, but I'm a big proponent of expected win models. Expected point model points models are a reasonable proxy for part of most games. 
I'll say, yep. because they, they really don't do as well in describing activities in the second half of football games, where if you're leading, you're all about time management. And if you're trailing, you're much more about trading, oftentimes expected points for a chance to catch up. You may take, make decisions that are, would otherwise be bad points decisions in order to have a chance to, uh, to catch up in the game. So I, I'm, you know, I've always been a big proponent of expected wins models, but then the problem with them, and, I, and please Jim in, chime in at any time on this, but the problem with expected wins models is we really haven't found the holy grail yet, is that there, are, there isn't a really great single expected wins models. Locke and Nettleton is getting better in terms of, of moving down the line towards a, 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 um, a good model, but I, I haven't seen a good one with a lot of it with a big AI component to it yet. Meaning we're looking backwards at data to determine what win probabilities were at any given point in the game. And we're doing it based on old coaching decisions and not what would be current coaching decisions that are informed and whatnot. So you can't look back over 20 years of data to try and get expected wins and model them effectively without some sort of AI component to improve coaching over time, for example, just improve decision-making over time. Right. Yeah. And, you know, that's definitely true on, on both accounts, you know, expected points is kind of a, uh, it's, it's a little bit easier to understand, you know, you just naturally can kind of think about what the, um, you know, the points added on a, on a given play or the, what the expected outcome is of a, of a given drive, uh, win probability. Um, it's a little, you know, a little less clear. And as you said, it's a lot more dependent on the model. Um, and, and the one I used, uh, it is, they're both historically based, uh, based on the data. Um, you know, kind of they're, they're, they're pop, they're popular and relatively strong models, I think that are out there now. So, um, they're kind of some of the best available, I would say currently. So, uh, while I would agree that there is, especially in the win probability kind of growth opportunities out there, especially as the coaching decisions change, I think it's a good, um, still a good tool to be looking at now. So, um, so the expected points, as I mentioned, just, uh, you know, it, it's kind of the expected number of points you're going to, um, earn on that drive and win probability is your chance of winning at that, at that point. So, um, and we'll, we'll talk about both of those, um, quite a bit in the, in this presentation. So, all right. And the other one, uh, we talked about base, uh, base defensive package by team a little bit, uh, in the presentation. I, and I used the, the site, uh, IDP guru to talk about, um, uh, what the base package was for each team. So, all right. So I, I mentioned earlier that we're going to dive into technique quite a bit um, in the in this presentation. So, so I wanted to talk about um, what defensive line technique is. So the technique is kind of a, a term to describe the alignment relative to the offensive line uh, position. So the offensive line, you know, they line up in a given spot, center, guard, tackle, you know, guard, tackle on either side, and then a tight end on likely one of the sides, possibly two or, or none. So, um, you know, generally the offensive linemen, you can, everyone's got a pretty set understanding of where they line up. So the defensive line is then their alignment and technique is then judged based on where they are relative to those offensive linemen. Um, so you can see in the, in this picture, um, the technique is described generally in number format, uh, you know, zero through nine with some with the, the I, which is uh, 
for inside technique. Um, so you've got zero, which is heads up on the center. Hey Dan, one. Uh, yep. just let me stop you for one second because yeah. I'm not sure I can see your screen right now. I'm looking at a, at a picture of you and I'm not sure you're sharing your screen. Josh, are you able to see a screen? Yeah, the screen's up. Okay. You must have did something on your end. Yeah, probably. It's a normal kind of a thing. Okay, I see something up here. Sorry about that, Dan. No problem. Okay, go, go right ahead. I'll, All I'm right. following. Okay, cool. So, uh, so zero tech is heads up on the center. One tech is uh, just on the, the shoulder of the center. Um, two eye is, you know, the, the inside shoulder of the guard and, and so on. So, um, you know, we get out towards the end and that's where it gets a little bit different. And there's some kind of discussion on, on what the tech actually represents or, you know, what it could be named. Uh, five is on the outside shoulder of the tackle. Seven is kind of outside of that. Um, generally, probably when there isn't a tight end there. Six is heads up on the tight end. Uh, nine is on the outside of a tight end. And outside, the outside tech is even further out than that. Um, so, you know, there's there may be some just uh, debate on, you know, what the, the proper name is for some of these alignments, uh, but this is the uh, the way that the the contest gave the, the text. So this is how the data was coded. So this is kind of what we're going to go with from here. So this is the the alignment that um, that we'll be referring to when we talk about techniques. So right. okay, your definition for sure. The seven tech was the only thing that kind of was. A little funny looking to me in terms of how it's lined up here. I was, I, I always think of a nine and a wide nine almost as being um, uh, synonyms that they're, mm -hmm. that they're that they're both represent an outside technique that's not on the on the outside shoulder of a tight end, for example. But uh, yeah, this this will you, you take us through with the contest yep. definition. That's great. All right, sounds good. Okay, so next we're going to talk about. Um, so as we talked about, in order to determine the most valuable defensive line position, we've got two questions to answer. We've got how do we define defensive line position and then how do we define value? So defensive line position, you know, there were three main concepts that I approaches that I thought through um, and I ended up at the winning decision was the defensive line technique, which is like I mentioned, what we're gonna talk about a number of times throughout the presentation. Um, and we'll talk about the different approaches quickly that I reviewed um, and then, when we talk about value, I uh, went through and looked at results-based and opportunity-based, and really I ended up at opportunity-based as kind of the way I wanted to talk about value. And we'll go into what both of those mean and why I made that decision in a second. So, um, so roster position, this was provided in the data as defensive end, defensive tackle, linebacker, other, you know, this is kind of what most people normally think of when they think of kind of talking about someone's position. Um, but when I looked at um, the roster position versus how it was used, uh, someone that played DN played all over the line. So they really played, you know, a lot of times all different techniques, all different positions. And, and, and really, it was difficult to, to represent kind of their value um, because I wanted to talk about like how, you know, on a given play, what role they were playing versus kind of the full concept of roles they could play. So, uh, so I really wanted to focus. Um, so, so I thought that kind of wasn't a, a perfect representation. So, um, and I also thought about, 
Yep. One quick question, Dan, yeah. is you're taking uh, a two-point and three-point stances both into consideration. So even though, like I might consider defensive lineman a three-point stance player, this includes both of people at the line of scrimmage that were included in the data you got from SIS. Right, anyone on the line of scrimmage. Um, and it actually included a, like a little bit off the line, but those were those off-ball ones that I excluded. So this, the people that we looked at were were purely the ones on the line of scrimmage regardless of kind of their stance that they were in. So, um, and we'll see that when you look at the names that we'll, we'll see both on the NFL side and the Baltimore side, um, you know, we'll see a number of uh, players that you wouldn't necessarily consider defensive linemen by the, by the purest sense, I guess, or the, um, the standard sense. Um, the other field that we looked at was on field position. That was really just defensive line and linebacker. It's too broad of categories for me to really um, get much insight on that. So I wanted to dive deeper. And then technique. This is the one that I really like because it really kind of focused on their role on that given play. So, um, you know, it, it was while it didn't necessarily represent the full player, it represented what they were doing on that play. So when we talked about their value on that play, it really kind of isolated and I could, we were always using the same definition for play after play after play. It was set, you know, that definition held um, versus a roster position. You know, it, it could be different on every, every play. So, um, so, th so that's what I ended up looking at was the technique position. One thing that, um, we'll talk about in a second is that there were a lot of values. There were 12 values and that was, that was a lot to do. So ended up grouping it. Um, you know, so just looking at this chart, um, I ended up grouping it in five different groups. Um, we'll talk a little bit more later about, you know, why I grouped them this way, but high level, it was because of a, a combination of, um, a, a combination of usage and alignment. So, you know, ones that were aligned similar in position on the line and also that were used in similar type of plays. So we'll see later on that, um, you know, that, that even though ones, some positions were very close to each other, they were used very differently. Um, in this chart on the right, you can kind of see the number of snaps by position. So you can see that the outside and the three tech were, you know, used a lot, which I think is um, kind of to be expected based off of, uh, you know, general viewing of, of the game. So the thing that really jumps off the screen here for me anyway, is the fact that zero and one techs are separated into two different groups. Mm -hmm. And I think of that as often being the same player. You know, if you, if you, if your team lines up in a typical one, three, five alignment for your down lineman in a base package, there, go ahead. Yeah. I'm sorry. No, so I, I definitely agree. And I think if we look purely at an alignment um, stance, I think I would, I would definitely agree. You can see how close they are, you know, when you, when you look at this chart um, on, on where they stand relative to the center. Um, but when we look later on, on the type of plays that they were used in, and I use type kind of in quotes, but um, the type of play is based off of value that they were used in. It was pretty different. Um, they, weren't, they weren't used in consistent plays. So I felt that um, in order to tell the story kind of, they were used differently in plays. So I wanted to analyze them separately. So um, while just purely looking at alignment, I would have put them in the same, looking at alignment and usage, they ended up kind of being separate. But 
in a couple slides, we'll jump in and, and see kind of where that where that difference kind of showed. So, all righty. All right. So now we'll talk about Ravens. Um, so here's the big chart. I know it's a lot of numbers, and hopefully people can see it. But uh, if not, jump on the on the PowerPoint uh, slides that we'll we'll be posting the website and and check it out. Uh, we've got all the players uh, for 2019. Again, it was weeks nine through 17. So you'll be, see some some players missing and some players different based off because we all know there were a lot of changes on, on the defense in 2019. I also threw two, uh, two of the big free agent additions in there, uh, highlighted in blue, uh, Calais and, and Derek, um, and, and kind of threw them in there. Their numbers are based on their usage in, in 2019. Um, just a couple of things that jump out to me uh, when I was looking at this. Um, you know, you, you see Brandon Williams, 41% at three tech last year. Uh, we know this year it'll be a lot more inside. So uh, just kind of keeping that in mind when we look at how he was used in 2019. Um, one of the things that, that jumped out to me also was looking at Calais Campbell. He was the only player here that played every single tech. It's a nomad. Outside. <laughs> he just played everywhere, you know. Um, so I'm, I'm sure uh, um, I'm sure they're looking forward to, uh, you know, thinking about all the fun combinations that they can they can use for him um, in 2020. So I, I think that this is one of the really great slides here. I, I just want to talk for a second. Brandon Williams, you already pointed out about him being, you know, used mostly as a three. He'll be moving back to a, a nose tackle role this year. It could literally be that 100% of his snaps will come at the zero or one tech this next year. I mean, it's just there's no obvious reason for me unless he was on. I guess he could be on the field with Ellis in some sort of a short yardage package where they're where they're trying to move him one tech out or whatever. But it just there's no obvious reason for him, for him this year to play anywhere but a zero or one. And it also tells you that boy, the guy's been laboring, uh, you know, playing over a guard basically these last couple of years instead of playing over center three years really with Pierce here um, when when he. He, his more natural position, he was certainly graded better by a lot of systems and he looked better by a lot of measures um, in the earlier years of his career before, before Pierce showed up. Yeah, I think uh, a lot of people that have been watching him are really excited for to see what he can do moving back to his natural position. So, um, you know, myself included, I, I think it'll be a, a good one to good one to see. So, um, you know, a couple other things that jump out to me. Um, Bowser was 100% from the outside. I thought that was kind of interesting. You know, a lot of the outside linebackers play some sort of inside tech at you know various positions or various times, but he was 100% on the outside. Uh, comparison: You've got uh, Jihad Ward, who I think people struggle on what position to to label him. You've got you know 40% outside, but then you've got over 50% of his snaps were inside the five tech so a significant number were were pretty inside so i think that was a real interesting um alignment for for ward i so. mean i think the explanation is fairly clear to me he played if he played 40 percent well it's, it's okay let's call it half the snaps he played basically on the inside that's 125 snaps the ravens played 12.3 of just about a thousand snaps 12.3 percent and they're all back loaded in the season um, of the four outside linebacker dime package. Mm. He's always an inside guy in that. So that, that, this is, I think, very corroborating for, for yeah, that, so that, that he would have been a, He was one of those tech, three yeah. tech, four, four inside when... Uh, yeah, he's never doing that on a rundown. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah he, it's always on a passing down. Okay. Yeah. That's when you get Calais in there. So, yeah. And uh, I think another thing to, to think about as we'll, we'll see um, throughout the slides is, is um, a name that might not ring a bell for a lot of people is Zach Sealer. So he only played a little bit with the Ravens, played week 10 out of this data with the Ravens, but then played with Miami week 15, 16, and 17. And actually did pretty well with Miami mm -hmm. with them. So you'll see when we look at some of the stats, this includes both um, both his time at the Ravens and Miami. So kind of uh, you, you might see his, his name jump out there and be like, I don't remember him doing anything for the Ravens. It's because it was. Because he didn't. He was with Miami. So. Let me make one more point about that from Sealer's perspective. Yeah. Is Sealer came into this league and Ozzy's first words to him were something like, you're my last draft pick, but then after that, it's, you look like a natural five-tech to me. The five-tech <laughs> okay. has really gone away in the NFL in terms of, of most packages. You don't have um, – you don't have the base package look. And this, I'm talking about for a down lineman now. You, could, you might have – I mean, obviously, somebody, somebody's playing that. But for a down lineman, it's, it's, since you play so much nickel, you play a one and a three as your down lineman. And you don't, you don't typically have that five-tech guy. So, unfortunately, uh, Zach didn't have a place here, which was, which was a shame because he certainly looks like a player now based on, on what you said, Dan, and his play in Miami the last few weeks. Yeah, and, you, you know, that kind of – Really, the, what you said about the five tech really shows here. You know, nobody other than Derek Wolf and Clayus Campbell had a double digit percentage at five tech. So, real small percentage. The only one that did was close was Wormley at nine percent, and and he was on. I think a lot of the time he was on was on run plays. So, right. you know, probably when we did have base package, he was on. So that probably skews his a little bit. So. Still of 247 snaps, it looks like he played about uh, 25 snaps, maybe or less, a little bit less, in fact, right. as, as that five tech. Yeah, so not, not very many. So, well, I thought that was kind of a fun way to, you know, look at, look at where everyone lined up and everything. So that's the, the first dive into the Ravens. We'll, we'll see some more as we go through the presentation. So next we want to talk about uh, the value. So we've got position based off of tech. Now let's talk about how we're going to measure the value. Uh, we've got uh, two kind of options that the the main option that people that uh, you know people would think about when we talk about value is some sort of results based um, analysis. Um, what I thought when when I kind of thought this through is that when you do results based analysis, you're really talking about the value of the players. You're talking about um, you know the value of how they did uh, versus the value of the position and kind of the potential. So instead of measuring, you know, what could happen in this defensive end position, you're now actually measuring what X player did at that position. So kind of, I wanted to take a step back and think about uh, what could happen. And, and what I called that was the opportunity based value. So, um, so instead of looking at what actually did happen, I kind of looked at what, what could happen. Um, so what I used was, um, the expected points and the win pro probability models that we talked about beforehand. Um, and again, normally when we talk about expected points and win probability, um, we talk about what happened during the play. So we talk about expected points added or win probability added during a play. And again, those are results-based. So what happened during the play drives that calculation. So what I did is I kind of came up with a concept of um, 
you know, and I'm sure lots of other people have the concept too, but uh, what I calculated was what I called expected points added range and when probability added range. So E par and W par. Um, and that kind of talks about the range of possible outcomes that could happen for a play. So you talk about, you know, what could happen for that play and that measures the value of that play. So not talking about what did happen, just what could. So, um, so that's kind of what we'll talk about. So, yeah. Let me take a shot at kind of restating that in kind of different language people may be more, more familiar with. Sure. We, we talk about leverage a lot on the show in terms of, hey, these guys played a lot of high leverage snaps. And we often mean they came in on third down on pass plays where there's more on the line and where they came in on fourth and short maybe or whatever it might have been. But uh, I think this concept goes, goes pretty clearly with that in terms of the higher leverage plays have the bigger um, shift in point values from end to end. And you, that's what you're attempting to capture here. Exactly. Bar. Yep, exactly. Yep, those highly leveraged plays we'll see. And, um, you know, we'll go through an example um, and uh, the third down and kind of see how end to end you, you really see that the, the wider spread of possible outcomes. So uh, so just kind of walking through the steps of, of the calculation. Um, for each snap, there's a range of possible events like I talked about. And each of them has a certain likelihood of, of happening, you know, certain certain scenarios have more likely, you know, are more likely to have short yardage gains versus long yardage gains and things like that. So not all plays have the same possible outcomes. So I looked at each, each situation kind of differently uh, to, to determine the range of possible events. And then each of those possible events have an associated EPA and WPA uh, when, when probability added. So, you know, if they gained that, those, those outcomes, what would the change in EPA and WPA PAB. And then what I did is calculated the, the E par and W par to see the spread around those possible values. So that's kind of the steps in, in kind of the logic that I applied. And I think it's really kind of clearest to kind of just go through a couple examples um, on what happened. Um, so when I looked at what the possible outcomes were, I wanted to base that on, um, you know, uh, on historical plays, you know, on actual possibility, not just kind of theoretical possible events. So, I, so what I looked at was last uh, five years of history from uh, the NFL scraper data. Um, I grouped the data by downs, yards to go and yard line, and I grouped it in 10 yard increments to kind of get big enough buckets to get a good sample of, um, uh, of yards gained. And then what I did was I came up with four kind of expected outcomes um, that represented the the full group. So what I did was I split it into into four quadrants, and and took the the, the middle percentile of each of those quadrants. So the twelfth, thirty seven point five, sixty sixty second point five, and eighty seven point five percentile of the kind of the yards gained in those different scenarios, um, and those were kind of the the yards gained that I used, uh, and then I applied those um, to the real real data and calculated the, the E par and W par from that. Um, large values represent a play with more quote unquote value of those highly leveraged plays in determining the outcome of the game. So looking at two kind of examples, example one and two over here. Uh, example one is first and 10 from the 75 yards. To, so the 75 yard line, which is 75 yards to go. Um, basically it's your own 25. Um, and example two is third and six from 
um, their 32, so 32 yards to the end zone. So, you know, kind of very different scenarios. Um, again, they, in order to find the yards gained, they fell into 10 yard increments. So the first one was from the 70 to the 80 yards yard line, and the second one was 30 to 40. <clears throat> So looking at the four kind of quadrants of expected yards gained based on the last five years, uh, first and 10 from the 75, uh, the, the four quadrants were zero yards, two yards, six yards, and 14 yards. So those are the kind of the four expected yards gained outcomes that I ran through uh, the model. Um, okay, now just, let me stop you there for a second. Yeah. I want to be clear. That's a discrete number in each case. It's not an average. You've really taken a median of each quartile to get those 0, 2, 6, and 14. So that's why it doesn't look like 2.1 or 6.4 or whatever. It's an exact number. Right. Yep, exactly. Yep. Just discrete representation of the percentile. Yep. Uh, you know, and I, I think there's arguments for different ways, but this is kind of where I landed on, on doing the model. So, um, and then for the third and six uh, from the from the 32-yard line, uh, you've got uh, yards gained of 0, 0, eight and 17. So you can just see from the yards gained, you know, a very different distribution um, of possible outcomes The you know, nearly, uh, nearly, you know, 50% or, or basically two quadrants represented by zero yards gained on, on third down. Um, and otherwise you've got enough for a first down or a lot more than enough for a first down. So um, you kind of see that and, and we'll see that how that plays out in the EPA and WPA. So then what I did was I ran those four, um, those four possible outcomes through um, EPA and WPA formulas. For EPA, you need, a, um, you need the, the time in the game. Uh, for this example, I showed what it would be for the second quarter, beginning of the second quarter. Um, when I did the actual analysis, I used the real time in the game. So it, it applied for every play when, they're really t when their actual time was. For WPA win percentage um, added, uh, the the score differential comes into play. So uh, again, I used for the real analysis, I used the actual score differential. For this example, I used a tie game. Uh, so for this this example, you can see kind of the EPA for the first example goes from negative 0.7 because you lost yardage, negative 0.4 again, uh, two yards or sorry, the first one zero yards gained. Uh, which, which, which hurts your chances of uh, expected points. Um, two yards similarly hurts your chances for expected points. Um, six yards gained is enough and uh, increases your chances slightly, uh, 0.3, and 14 yards enough for a first down is uh, increases your expected points by 1.2. Uh, you got on the other side, um, you can see the numbers and, and those that can't see it's a uh, negative 1.3, negative 1.3, 1.3, and 1.6. Um, you know, similar, I'm not going to read through the numbers for WPA, um, but kind of similar concepts. Um, and then you can see how that ends up being reflected in the, uh, the EPAR and the WPAR. So example one, which a reminder was first and 10 from this, uh, your own 25, that was an EPAR of 0.865 compared to third and six from their 32, the EPAR was nearly 1.6. So did, almost double. Did you double. tell us how EPAR was calculated, the expected points oh. added range? Oh, sorry, yeah. Um, 
So when you look at EPA, you've got those four numbers, um, the, the negative 0.7, negative 0.4, 0.3, and 1.2. So what I did was in order to kind of measure the range of those four numbers, I took the standard deviation of those four numbers. So just a you know simple way to measure kind of a range of, of numbers, the, the variance in, in numbers, uh, I used the standard deviation. So, okay. um, so the standard deviation for, you know, same, same concept for the W par. It's the standard deviation of the four uh, possible WPA numbers. And, and it's, so if you just, if E par were instead standard deviation of EPA, it would mean the same thing yeah. as you've, okay. Yep, yep, standard deviation of those four possible EPA, EPA quartiles. Yeah, you're right, yep. that is more complex. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> really yeah exactly. Standard deviation of four quartiles of EPA. So shortened it out to EPAR. So, um, but uh, uh, so you got, you know, the third and six is, is nearly double the EPAR. So you can really see that the value, you know, is, is represented by, um, by the variance in the EPA possibilities. So, um, and, and WPAR, um, similarly, it's about, about twice um, uh, for, for third and six, what it was for first and 10. Um, so you got, so these are kind of two examples. Another one that you can kind of think about is like, um, you know, first and one from, from uh, first and goal from the one. Uh, while traditionally some, you know, that might be determined to be kind of a, a valuable play, in this case, it probably wouldn't be because it's highly likely that the, the team's going to score, um, you know, regardless. It's first and, first and goal from the one, whether you um, – so the, the E par or the W par would actually be pretty low on, on that type of scenario. And, I th and that's the kind of um, picture that I wanted to, to use because um, while it's an important play, the – the value of a defensive player there doesn't really make a big difference. Even the best defensive line is probably going to give up a score. So the value of a great defensive line versus a below average defensive line, it does not much value on first and goal from the one. So I really wanted to measure the highly leverage, like you said, high variance um, plays. So Right. So I've got another metric for you that I that I'm just thinking of what it would be if you if you take a representative example two divided by a representative example one, you get the Levine coefficient or whatever, which which is what he wants to use to to negotiate his salary based on the fact that dimebacks are really important in this league and seem to be underpaid. Yep, exactly. Yep. 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 Those are the plays I'm going to be on. They're important. So, yeah. <laughs> so, so you need to pay me. Exactly. That's the, the value that we're looking at here is, um, is kind of the value of the plays, the variance of those plays. So, all right. Um, jumping forward. Now we're kind of going to look at, uh, so what I did then was I, I took that approach and applied it to every scenario um, in, in the database. Um, so every snap that was shown, um, I, I calculated the, the EPAR and the WPAR for. Um, in this chart, you can see where the EPAR kind of fell for all the different techniques. So this is kind of where I was talking about how you could see that the zero tech and the one tech had a, a pretty different usage. So the zero tech, um, it's a little bit hard to see here. 
um, because they're relatively close together. But the medians were, um, by numeric values, they were pretty different. Um, and you can see that the range between the first, the first quartile and the second quartile are, are very different between zero tech and one tech. So they appear to be used in very different types of plays uh, on an EPAR basis. So, um, so for that reason, I kind of uh, separated zero tech in, into their own group. Uh, one tech through three tech, I kind of grouped together, very similar usage and similar alignment. Uh, four I and four tech um, were, were similar usage and similar alignment. Um, then I've got five, seven, and six. Uh, that would be what I called the defensive and wide tech. Um, mm -hmm. And then you've got nine and outside. While nine and outside were different from each other, they were significantly different from the rest of the population in both alignment and um, usage that I felt comfortable kind of grouping them together. So um, can, can we uh, take a moment here to talk yeah. about why this might be true? And I'm looking at this and I'm seeing, this is saying that a zero tech has a wider range of outcomes than a one tech. And my first reaction is it's the same player on the field, but then I th think about it a little bit more. And I think what you're really saying is that a zero tech is gonna play more of those high leverage downs because you're more likely to play a guy right over center on say a third and six play as opposed to a first and 10 play because your, your, your rush alignment may look like that. Yeah, so I think it, it, it kind of depends on, yeah, so basically the alignment is of a zero tech, that alignment is used in more highly leveraged plays than the one tech. So whether they're the same position, same player or not, um, that can play both it is, you know, that that is definitely a valuable study. But what I'm trying to analyze here was, what alignments were used for the most valuable plays, which then makes them the most valuable alignments. So, Gotcha. Okay, so let's take a step farther and just go, and I don't want to jump on some of your future material if it's on a slide to go, but if you're trying to, to look at Brandon Williams and his projected 2020 usage, mm -hmm. you might look and say, okay, he's going to play almost all zero or one tech this season, as for reasons we discussed earlier. Yep. And, and so in valuing the position, the nose tackle is more important. In valuing the player, it would be the combination of zero and one contributions he made that might be a reasonable valuation of the importance of the at-bats, we'll call it, that he's getting as a, as a defensive player. Absolutely. Yeah, when you're trying to analyze actual players from a GM perspective, you know, deciding to make roster decisions, um, you really want to think about, which of these, you know, what combination of these would they play, which is driven by the player, but also by your system. So, you know, you're going to totally see that. Um, and that's kind of one of the things that we talk about for future analysis. <laughs> so, you know, I didn't, didn't dive into that, but, um, but, you know, it, it really, this kind of measures the technique, but with a GM, you kind of have to think about, okay, what does this mean for us? You know, so that's kind of a, kind of a different perspective, I guess, that you would have to take um, and, and kind of combine the different values, so. Okay, now, right. now let, me, let me ask you another question here. And I know you, Dan is an actuary, I'm an actuary. You know, we obviously have an affinity for the numbers here. Uh, Dan's way ahead of me on any kind of uh, data analysis type stuff. But, but one question comes to mind, is any of this, and I'm looking at the paucity of total 
nose tackle snaps in the study. On the first slide, I noticed just how few zero tech snaps there were in the entire thing relative to one, two, two I, and three, mm -hmm. for example. Is there anything about the limited amount of data that is making the median quartile values more spread out and creating additional um, uh, standard deviation in those median quartile results? Uh, let's see, testing my stats knowledge here. Um, you know, so just thinking about it, I, I think that there were a high enough number of snaps that it should be a good representation overall of the kind of the range. Mm -hmm. um, if you, you know, if you have a really small sample size, the, you know, the range can be a little bit misleading, but these numbers were pretty big um, that I think it should be a pretty good representation. And they were far enough away that I think that, that you know, I, I'm pretty comfortable with the results. Um, when we look at individual players, uh, there were a lot of times I put down, put floors because of exactly that reason. Like you can't really look at someone that had three snaps at a position. Like that's, you know, that could be, you know, that's not a good representation. So, um, so really, you know, I think, I think when you talk about the full data set, I think it's, it, it was a large enough number. So. Okay. It, uh, I, I don't want to delve further into this. Maybe you and I can talk a little bit yeah. offline about this because I'm, I, I, some things come to mind about um, standard deviation increasing with a square root of N and yep. okay. you know, you know where I am on this and, yep. and, uh, and expected value increasing with N. Yeah. Right. So I think, you know, when you've got all that, we can, we can definitely talk about that more and, 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 and branch into that. So, um, all right. So then, um, looking at the kind of the results of, of what happened when I broke the technique into the five groups, um, we've got the nose tackle, the defensive tackle, the defensive end, defensive end wide, and then the outside. So you can see, um, kind of, uh, up, up top kind of, what what the range was of the epar and then similarly on the bottom it kind of combines um the uh the epar and and wpar um kind of on a per snap basis so on a per snap basis you've got you know uh nose tackle was the highest uh followed by defensive end and then outside uh those three also had the widest range you know so they not only had um the highest kind of overall like the general you know median but you've also got the the highest range so you've got a higher kind of they also played on more high value um upside uh plays so then defensive tackle you've got um you've got the smaller range and uh similarly defensive end wide you've got the the smaller range and the smaller median um same thing held held true for uh wpar so you can see um See, see kind of how that how that showed so uh, so that's on a per snap basis we've got again nose tackle leading the way um then we'll then we'll look at kind of on a per game basis so you know each each position isn't used for the same number of snaps per game and you can see here that the nose tackle drops all the way down to last uh so they were on uh they were first in um per snap but they play high value snaps but not very often so if you want to look on a per game basis they aren't on the they aren't on the on the field very often 
uh, at the zero tech. Again, this is zero tech versus other ones have multiple techs kind of pooled together. So there is that a little bit as well. Um, that it's kind of only looking at one alignment versus other ones have multiple alignments. I, I just want to make sure people are understanding this from the screen and maybe some of the people who are just trying to listen uh, yeah. uh, by themselves is that you, the, the ch chart we're looking at now is aggregate expected value added per game. So it's adding up all the snaps times the EPA gain on those plays. And so the, that, that's why nose tackle drops to last despite the fact it's one of the highest in terms of, of uh, uh, representation from the first uh graph what are we going to several slides ago yep yeah so on a per snap basis nose tackle was the highest but then um but then when we look on the the total for a game you know so per snap times number of snaps basically um used in the game nose tackle drops to last uh outside which was um i think it was second or third on a per snap basis is now in first so it uh it's driven by a relatively high per snap um, EPAR, but also they're used on a, the outside position is used on a significant number of snaps, which we saw, you know, a while back in the percentages of, uh, uh, of text, we saw, you know, the outside alignment, alignment was the highest. So uh, the other thing that jumps out is the defensive tackle. Defensive tackle is now second on a per game basis, um, even though they were, uh, they were last on a per snap basis. So that's driven, um, oh, excuse me, they were fourth on a per game basis. So that's driven by, you know, a extremely high number of snaps, the defensive tackle position. So they aren't on for the highest value plays, but they're on, they are on for a lot of plays. I so, mean, wouldn't it be true that basically you have one, at a minimum of one, a minimum of the two, three, four, and four I alignments covered on every single play. So you, have, you always have one of those, but mm -hmm. you pretty much, you only have a zero or one with the exception of some very short yardage runs where they try and put a guy on each side of the center and you might have two one gap players. Right. So, you know, so I think that kind of shows that this is aligning with your expectations, right? So you've got the zero text for short yardage plays, which are those highly high value plays, um, as long as they're not really, you know, ex limited ex expected outcomes, um, but a generally high value play, but that doesn't happen very often. So if you're looking at a per play basis, the, the zero tech is very valuable, but if you're looking at a per game basis, zero tech isn't that valuable because it doesn't really happen that often. But a per snap, you've got almost every snap covered from the defensive tackle. So per snap, it's kind of just average. It's just kind of, like you said, every snap, it's, it's you know, that, that naturally leads to being very average. But on a total value, it's, it's very valuable because you're playing all the time. So it just depends on which which way per snap or per game um, basis you wanted to look at it. So we'll look at that um, throughout our analysis both ways because, you know, depending on which perspective you are interested in uh, gives you kind of a very different answer. So. All right. All right. But uh, overall, you know, the combination of the high value per snap and the large number of snaps kind of, if I had to give one answer, the outside position uh, seems to be the most valuable um, on based on a kind of the way I was defining value. And I think that kind of aligns with, um, you know, what a lot of people think when they're talking about defensive line where, where value is. So.
That's where certainly where NFL teams spend the money. Right? Yeah. On, yep. on pass yep. rushers. Yeah. Okay. Um, all right. So now we're ready to dive into question number two. Uh, talent by defensive line position. So we're going to look at it by two different ways. We're going to look at it by the opportunity, which is using that same value technique that we just talked about. Um, and that, what that's going to kind of let us see is what players are viewed as most valuable by the coaching staff. So which players are using on those high leverage, high value snaps. So, um, you know, if, if I use you on the real important downs, you're pretty valuable in my, in my opinion as a coach. So, um, and then we're also going to look at kind of the results, the kind of the more traditional way. And uh, we're going to use that. Uh, we'll talk about how I, I, I calculated those based on kind of the impact on EPA. And we'll kind of dive into that. All right. So talking about the opportunity. Um, so in these charts, we're looking at um, the, the, EP, the EPAR, both on a total and a per snap basis. Um, for the five different positions, but we're looking at, uh, you know, on a per player basis. So uh, this isn't just kind of like each snap individually looked at. We're going to looking at what each player did and kind of each of them have their own data point. Um, so that kind of is, is the difference between this and what we looked at before. So now we've got each data point represents uh, a player. Um, and you can see that the alignment of the um, but when we're looking at the totals, um, the the total EPAR for defensive tackles and outside players just uh, blow away the rest of the groups. And again, that's um, that's consistent with what we were seeing before, uh, based on the pure number of snaps. It's really driven largely by the number of snaps. Uh, the outside is driven by number of snaps and also the value per snap. Um, and then if you look at the second chart, the EPAR by snap by player, um, you can see that uh, that um, what we had, similar to what we had seen before, the nose tackle um, rises up to being first. Um, so again, nose tackles on a per snap basis are, are very valuable uh, given the opportunities uh, to play, um, but, but they don't play very often. So, so that's kind of consistent with what we're seeing when we look at a per player basis as well. Um, when we look at the kind of the top, the top of the total EPAR, it, it was pretty, pretty crazy. We, out of the top 20, 18 of them were all outside defensive linemen. So we'll really see that uh, outside, outside defensive line really kind of were the, the winners when you talk about the opportunity value played. So, um, you know, and I think that's consistent. You've got the, the high value plays and, you've got generally got really good ones with them that you don't want to take off the field. So they're on there for a lot of snaps. Uh, the two others that we'll see uh, in the top 20 were defensive tackles. And uh, my, my guess is people could probably have a pretty good guess who they were. So, but we'll see those names in a little bit. So, um, all right. So these are uh, a couple charts on how um, the distribution of those totals were kind of um, fell. So we looked at kind of how they, they stacked up against each other, but now we're looking at just the charts um, by position. Um, and the first thing that jumps out when you look at these charts is that they're all right skewed, uh, which means that, you know, most players are kind of grouped into one area on the lower end um, of, the, of the kind of spectrum of total EPAR. Um, so, and then there are 
a few really high value players. So that's where the skew to the right comes in is that you've got a couple of players that, that really stretch out the, the, the graph on, on the, out to the right on a total EPAR basis. And you can really see that in, in some of them. Um, you know, you've got defensive tackle that isn't as skewed. There's kind of a more evenly spread uh, distribution. But then you've got some like outside and defensive end wide, which really have, you know, a, a big skew to the right um, where, where there's, um, you know, a couple of players that are, that are very off the edge. Um, even defensive end, there's, there's only a few players that kind of really, really stretch out. Um, and, you know, it kind of, we can kind of dive into this as much as, as you want. Um, and I don't really know how much can you want to dive in to talk about the actual results that here. Um, we're also going to talk about them for, for the Ravens. Yeah. You know? let's, let's talk about the Ravens. I just do want to okay. point out the, the graphs on slide 18 now. Um, these, these don't have the same scale to them. So we're no. talking about uh, different amounts of total on the right-hand side there. So you can't look at defensive tackle, which goes up to a 400 EPAR, and compare it to defensive end, which goes up to what, about right, only the 200 or so, yep. Yeah, so, yeah, that's definitely, you know, uh, something to keep in mind when you're looking at these all on one, on one slide. Um, so, the, so the skew, particularly on the outside, covers a range on the right-hand side of that curve from 250 to 500, which is enormous. It's more than the total range at defensive end, for example. Yeah, and on the outside, just, uh, you know, there, Chandler Jones did Bud Dupree were way out there with, you know, like 500 and then 494. And then after that, it drops down to 450. So those two, as you know, you recognize those names, obviously, everyone on the, on the call. So, um, and then it drops off pretty significantly. So, um, you know, lots of, lots of players that you recognize on the high end of uh, the opportunities um, based off of usage uh, and the number of snaps. Uh, so, um, but we'll kind of fun to see the different different um, distributions. But yeah, you got to keep in mind the different scales for sure. So, all right. So let's take a look at, uh, at what they look like for Ravens. Uh, so uh, there's a lot of numbers and lot, lots of information on this chart. So we'll just kind of walk through it a little bit. And um, for each column, um, it's a, kind of a heat map where green is the higher values and red uh, is the lower values. So that's just kind of a quick way to look at it. Uh, again, it's the, all, all the players on the Ravens in 2019, plus uh, Derek Wolf and, and Clayus Campbell. Um, you know, you just, these are organized by uh, average EPAR. So up top, you've got a couple players that didn't, didn't rush, rush very often, but uh, when they did were, were high players or high, high value plays, Brendan Carr and, and LJ Fort. So those, you know, two and eight snaps, not very meaningful. But Patrick Ricard was kind of interesting, 29 snaps. And when he was in, they were high value, which is good. You know, you don't want to be putting him on the field for, for when you don't need him. So they better be high leverage snaps when you're using him. So, uh, so okay. that's kind of consistent with what you're seeing. I, I want to hit on that for just a yeah. second. Because Ricard played in the second half as a situational pass rusher effectively yep. for – a, a, a fair number of those 29 snaps and he particularly would have played well no because you're going to judge it by the down and distance not by the result at all but anyway he'd be playing on a lot of a lot of pass rush snaps within that 29 and that would have contributed to this very high average epar yep. that he would have had okay right he was only in for passing down so 
the fact that they passed is meaning that it was likely a very high leverage down and distance. So, uh, so that's when they put them in where those, those highly leveraged high EPAR uh, plays. Um, then you've got Chuck Clark, which uh, he rushed uh, for 46. Um, he was on the defensive line for 46 snaps. So again, a very high EPAR, uh, which is good because again, you don't want to be, you know, risking those risky plays on, on kind of low variance plays. So, Let's, let's talk about that for a second as yeah. well. Clark would have accumulated most of these 46 snaps on uh, higher leverage downs because he moves up to play dimeback. Mm -hmm. And so because he's lining up at linebacker, then he may line up at the line of scrimmage in a, in a simulated double-A blitz or whatever that would show up on make him show up on this chart and would naturally come on the more important plays because hey, it's, it's the dime defense is in. Exactly, yep. Yep, and even whether he rushed or not, uh, it's whether what his alignment was. So if you lined up for a fake double-A blitz um, and then dropped off into coverage, that would still count in this case. Uh, we'll see later on um, where we look at his rush percentage, but, um, but that would count in this case for sure. Um, so then we kind of dive a little bit later on down. We kind of start, start seeing some players that you would actually consider defensive linemen, and the top of them is uh, Jihad Ward. So he's in um, on the, the highest um, EPAR for any kind of traditional defensive line slash outside linebacker roles, which um, I think is consistent with, again, what you were talking about, that uh, about half of those were on the race car package. So um, so those would be the high leverage plays, um, which would have the high EPAR, uh, which is, again, consistent with what we're, we're seeing here. Um, I thought it was really interesting to see Tyus Bowser and, and Jalen Ferguson also up, up high on here. So uh, for relatively young players to, to see and be used in uh, high value plays, I thought, I thought that was kind of encouraging to see. So Okay, so this, this takes into account their position too and uses the average by league for the position in calculating an average EPAR? No, this uses um, the actual downs that they were in. So... Um, so what I did is I kind of discounted their alignment for Ravens and just kind of took all of their alignments, regardless of where they played, okay. and looked at the actual snaps. So this is the actual snaps that they played, what the average was for them. So um, so this is the the average EPAR based off of the the snaps that they played. No, I I think I get that part, but yeah. the but the part I'm trying to get at is. Jalen Jalen Ferguson, for example, is made up of 299 individual snaps. But the mm -hmm. contribution of one of those snaps is based on the league average EPAR for that type of snap. Um, nope. So, well, I, I guess yes. So, league average in that um, we looked at the league average for the five years to determine the the. Um, league average yards gained for the four outcomes. Mm -hmm. And then those four outcomes are applied in every snap that Jalen Ferguson played. So for of every snap, type. every snap he played got a, um, there were four EPAs calculated for every snap. So every snap situation he was in got four, okay. four possible outcomes calculated. I think you're answering my question. I just want to make sure of it by asking it one more time in okay. a slightly different way. Okay. So, so this did not take into account the tech that he was in in those plays. It's only the range of values for those plays he was in. 
Correct. Yep. Okay. Yep. Now I'm with you. Yep. Okay. So this is strictly a measure of importance of the play and whatnot. So I love these these Raven slides, by the way, because they're great storytelling slides that that are that are make this come to life more for me in terms of of mm -hmm. what we're doing. And Tyus Bowser, I guess it's not that shocking to me that he would have a very high EPAR per snap because as the season wore on, and you used the last weeks nine to seventeen of data. Um, as the season wore on, he was used more and more exclusively as a situational Sam linebacker on third down. So he was on the field primarily, well, almost exclusively, on the outside on third down and uh, opposite Judon on those plays. So it would make sense that his would be high. But Judon's is diluted by other snaps that he plays as a run defender. So his average EPR is lower on a per-play basis. Exactly. Because the Ravens need him out more on first down. Yep, exactly. Yep. That's spot on. Yep. So, yeah, so you can see Judon a little bit lower because he's got, like, you know, almost every snap basically he's on there. So he's got the lower lower value snaps weighing him down. Uh, you know, a couple other notable things, you know, you've got Wormley again down near the bottom uh, lower because he's on for uh, for the, the run plays. Um so then on the right side of the snap or right side of the screen, you can kind of see, I did break it down a little bit further. And instead of looking at every position or every alignment that they were in, I, I broke it down by alignment as well by tech. So, uh, so while Jihad Ward was about 1.2 overall, when he lined up in the defensive end position, he was like 1.5. So that mm -hmm. lines up with what we were expect. We were talking about those are those really high leverage race car package play so he's right he's the top when you look at a per technique uh, breakdown he's in a, in there in the middle on on race car packages used on high leverage plays uh ferguson which i thought was interesting was uh in, in defensive tackle so i my guess is those are again race car yes probably so, exactly it so yeah. they use just to, to to tell the story in in other terms we got bowser and judon on the outside of the race car and it was almost always ferguson and uh ward that played those two interior slots with a, with the nose tackle as well on many of those race car dimes. They would use just a, a, a set of dime defenders behind them, no inside linebackers on the package, and uh, and a nose tackle, often Brandon Williams on those plays. Yeah. So then you got the there you go. So the nose tackle, Brandon Williams, probably again when he played nose tackle, was those those race cars. So there you go. You're just telling the story right along with the numbers. So it's always nice when those those line up. So. Uh, and then he got uh, Clark on the outside for real high high value plays when he was uh, rushing or or pretending to rush. Um, and then um, again, you see Pierce at nose tackle, and then Ward again on on defensive tackle, likely uh, when he played uh, the other role in the race car. So, so kind of interesting to see those as we uh, you know as we talk through um, uh, the story of of 2019. So. Um, and then we talk about uh, measure by performance. So that's the other kind of side of the coin, right? So we're going to talk about pass plays and run plays since uh, the kind of the results are very different um, and measured very differently. So for pass plays, what I did was I looked at uh, the results um, based off of five events. The events were pressures, sacks, uh, fumble by the passer, pass breakup, and interception. Again, these are events that the defensive lineman did so the interception by a defensive back 
wasn't in, wasn't taken into consideration. These are only like very limited when a defensive line would intercept it. So um, these were events done by people from the line. So uh, what these charts are showing is kind of the impact on the average EPA. So this is the EPA now, not the EPAR. So this is actual change in expected points uh, based on the results. So the blue ones are when the event did happen and the red ones are when it did not. So you can see on, on all five events, the when the event did happen, it, it resulted in a lower uh, EPA, which is what you would expect. You know, a sack on the play would naturally be a lower EPA than play pass plays when there wasn't a sack. So, uh, so that was kind of my first first look. Make sure that uh, everything was lining up with what I expected. Um, so then, what I did was I wanted to measure how much of an impact on EPA each of these types of events had. Um, so what I did was I I used kind of linear regression based off of these events to kind of measure the impact on an EPA given whether that event occurred. So we, on, on a play, pass play where no event occurred, we've got an expected EPA of 0.4. Then for each of the different events, we've got different kind of impact to the EPA. A pressure causes a drop in EPA by 0.25, a sack drop in EPA by 1.6, and that's actually in addition to pressure because the sack counts as a pressure as well. So it's actually 1.85. Um, hmm. a, pass a pass breakup is about 1.2. Again, that's a pass breakup by the defensive line, not by a defensive back. Uh, interception, which is a change in EPA by about 3.3, which is, you know, as expected, very significant because of change of possession. Uh, fumble by the passer. Um, again, is a change in EPA is this one is only a, a change in um, in two by two, uh, but that's because it also is added to generally it's a pressure a sack, sack and a fumble, so you kind of got all three combined, which which brings it up to like about three or four. So um, it's, can we talk about this for a little bit? What's yeah. how are they defining a pressure here? And are they giving multiple individual pressures like DFF does on a single play to different players? Um, I don't know, and I don't know. So great okay. questions. I don't know the answer to either. Um, Got to sum to one is my point here. Uh, is, yeah. is it all the more important reason? Now, I don't have a problem with a pressure and a sack on the same play because I can, I can make that calculation myself. Or a sack and a fumble by the passer on the same play. Makes all kinds of sense. So it looks like a sack fumble, by the way, is worth – over four points without even knowing who recovers it. Well, so the uh, sorry, the fumble is recovered by the um, by the team. So okay. that that that's taken into consideration in the definition. Otherwise, it's just so. a sack. So it's a yep. fumble lost. Yep. Fumble, fumble lost, lost by passer. Yep. Okay. Yep. And um, I'm going to point this out, even though it goes against what you just said. But a sack counts as whether it's a full sack or a half sack. So okay, you technically, could get more than one in a play, uh, despite what you just said. You know, you're thinking it. Wait should. a minute, we a full sack or a half sack? If you get if, if you got two half sacks, that's fine, right? No, oh no, no, you're saying a half sack is 158, not 0.79. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. So partial, like kind of assist. It, they called it assisted sack. So I did not like split the EPA uh, based off okay. of an assisted sack, which I I can see your point that they should only get half of that. So I think that would be an improvement going forward. So. Alrighty. But, um, but all right, so that's kind of what, what we'll go through. Um, 
and we'll look at again by player by position on a total and per snap basis um, kind of as you would imagine the outside players uh, impact on EPA was was significantly higher than the other positions um, both because they you know they play a lot of snaps which we've seen but also um, if you look at a per snap basis they were the only position to kind of be above the overall defensive line average so you know they you can just see kind of this this they are far to the right on a impact on epa basis per snap uh versus the other defensive line so um and that's kind of i think consistent with what you would expect uh watching watching the games and watching you know um uh the results you, you know, there's plenty of discussion whether these pure results staff driven actually represents their value and that's you know why we looked at the opportunity versus these results and uh you know um but uh but looking at um the kind of the top 25 um on a total uh epar uh the top 24 are all outside defensive linemen uh the number 25 the first one that's not a defensive outside defensive lineman is uh, aaron donald which mm -hmm. makes sense so so all of the outside defensive linemen are typically going to get more of any counting event. So yep. there are more pressures, certainly more sack fumbles, um, more, more, more of, of the items that are measured there. The only thing that I, I guess a defensive tackle might do more of is knockdown passes, maybe. Yep. Pass breakups, yeah. Yep. Maybe even the interceptions, because that's kind of when a defensive line gets it, it's often related to the breakup. So, um, but yeah, the, the, the high occurrence events for sure is outside outside driven so makes sense um so again looking at the kind of the breakdown uh, as you mentioned before the scales are different so be careful looking at the five charts next to each other um like the nose tackle only goes to like five versus uh the outside goes to 40 so very different scales so don't 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 compare across. Look at the slide before if you want to compare across positions. This is um, this is off topic here, but yeah. what might be really cool is to overlay these graphs on them to kind of see the relative skew on this and also the relative impact. Yep. So yeah, it, it definitely is. It's just a, a busy lot of graph. Info. Yeah. <laughs> yep. yep. <laughs> so there's you know it's fun ways to compare, and you kind of got to do them in piecemeal, which is but then you end up with lots of slides. So um, pluses and minuses each way, I think. So. Um, but looking again, they're, they're all right skewed, which, which makes sense. Um, you know, few very high value, uh, especially on outside. There are a couple people on the very edge. Um, let me see if I can grab those numbers real fast or who they were. Um, you know, names that you would naturally recognize, uh, Chandler Jones, TJ Watt, Shaq Barrett, Bud Dupree, uh, Dante Fowler, all those are real, real high value total, total, um, results. So um as you kind of expect uh, one that i thought was really interesting is if you look at a, a per snap basis um the highest was jamal adams so he's he's got uh some good results for for when he rushes the quarterback so that's uh you know not surprising i guess when you look at all the highlights he does but um, i think that might be true more league-wide i've always noticed that pass rush grades on pff seem to be better um, it requires more of a slot corner or safety blitzing in terms of the percentage of pressures or I think PFF would call it pass rush productivity to get a similar grade. And that may be a function of 
there, you have to get a fair number of, of snaps in order to do it, or it may be a function of they really do need to get a higher percentage because they're expected to get a higher percentage relative to that position. They kind of right. always have the advantage of a surprising uh, pass rush opportunity. Yep, and having an extra person likely and things like that. So, all right, um, let's jump in. All right, so we'll jump in to look at Ravens. Uh, and kind of like what you're talking about, you've got all those defensive line, uh, defensive backs up there on the top. Uh, you know, we've got Chuck Clark, uh, high pr productivity, uh, Earl Thomas, high productivity, Brandon Carr, uh, high productivity as well. Um, you've got the snaps and then you've got the percent rush next to it. So those, that's the percentage that they actually ended up rushing uh, the quarterback on a pass play from that defensive line position. So Chark, uh, Chuck Clark, excuse me, only did about half the time. So he was kind of pretending those, those double A or outside blitzes about half the time. Um, but when he did rush, he was very effective. So I think that's, you know, he fantastic year last year all around. I think he was just such a, uh, you know, bright star on the team. So real excited for, for next year. Um, a couple of other things that, that jumped out, uh, Matt Judon, um, 80% pass rush. Um, as you know, I think I, you've mentioned it a lot of times, he drops back a ton on pass plays and, and coverage. And that's a lot of his value that people don't recognize often. So Bowser even um, more, look at this. Yeah. Bowser, I jumped out. That was, that was really crazy. And that, that's, uh, you know, he dropped back a ton and that's, um, we'll see how that plays out this year. And, and future for contracts, I think. So, you do you have do you have this information for the whole league that would compare Bowser to other edge players or or whatever he played the primary primary number of his snaps at? Oh, his primarily outside, right? He's one hundred percent outside. I wonder if you could compare him to other outside players in the league and see just where he fits in. That's an enormous. Yeah, he's he dropped thirty four point nine percent of the time. Yeah, I think I've looked at uh, at percentage of drops in other tables and other locations, and I think he's always near the top. He he drops back a ton, um, which you know I think is really interesting. But it also was you know good to see he was pretty productive as well when he did rush. So um, you know that's great that he was able to do both. So um, you know looking looking at a couple other other things that jump out. Um, one of the things to to keep in mind is this is what happened for 2019. Uh, you know, a lot of people will talk about how pressures are more important than sacks, like looking for future. And you look at, um, but when you look at this model and, and the EPA impact, this is, this skews heavily towards the sacks. Um, so you look at Judon, you know, 20 pressures a ton. So that's, that's real exciting for in the future. But then you also look at other players, you've got, Tyus Bowser with 12 pressures and Clayus Campbell with 22 pressures, Jalen Ferguson, 16, Todd Ward, 15. So lots of pressures and, you know, not a ton of sacks from, from them other than Judon, but, um, but uh, you know, um, but, you know, a, a clear, um, you know, clear indication or hopeful clear indication of um, continued success going forward. Um, obviously Chris warmly is wrong. I can tell you that right now. He did not get 12 sacks. So that's a typo. <laughs> Should be okay. two. <laughs> well, so. get, get that figured out. I wanted to, wanted to make one point about this. These pressures are SIS pressures, right? Mm -hmm. As is as defined by SIS. So a lot of different definitions exist out there, at least three or four. So, um, you've got definitions that at least come from SIS from PFF. Now pro football, 
reference has a pressure and a quarterback hit number. It's actually quarterback knockdowns, they call it. It should be quarterback hits, but it's not because the Judon doesn't match up at all for 2019. Uh, so you've got multiple sources which will give you different numbers of these counting events. And I, I, again, I, I, I am always, and I, I would encourage people who are out there to be very skeptical of how these things are calculated. Mm -hmm. Ask questions. Are they dividing out partial pressures as, as I would probably you know, say people should if you really want to get down to a single boiled down number? You know, do you give out half quarterback hits the way you would give out a half a sack? But anyway, whatever number you see about pressures, ask questions about how these things are defined. Yep, definitely a great point. Yep. Yeah, a couple other, just looking back at this, a couple other things, you know, thinking about uh, 2019 and going forward, you've got near the bottom of the list, you've got Ellis, Pecco, Pierce, and Williams. So that's inside pressure guys not delivering a ton of pure stats, basically. So I'm not saying how they did in real, you know, in real effect, but just pure stats not delivering a ton. So that's something really hoping for for a pickup in 2020. Yeah, they had, so they quarterback hits are not defined separately from pressure here. I'm just noticing this as well. Right. Yep. So it's, they would be a form of pressure, perhaps. They're a higher value play, I think we would all agree. But, um, yeah, looking at this, this is, this is pretty bad. Have, have no sacks is bad out of that position. But Brandon Williams had, a, had, a, had some difficulty with quarterback hits, too, because I think he had two penalties this year and, like, four or five quarterback hits. It was a small number. So, yeah, that's not uh, a good combo. Yeah. No, it's not a good combo. Judon had 30-plus, uh, might have been 33 quarterback hits and zero times um uh for roughing the passer he did have a horse collar tackle but zero mm -hmm. times so that was exceptionally good. right that, that's improvement because i don't think he's had that ratio in the past so i think that's good that's that's good to see so um yeah so i thought thought some real interesting uh numbers kind of showed through in this chart uh one thing thinking about 2020 is looking at uh Clayus campbell um you know like i mentioned 22 pressures um, if you look at his breakdown, which I don't have in this chart, but looking at his breakdown that I had in the numbers, um, nine of those uh, pressures and two and both sacks came when he was playing defensive tackle. So uh, defensive tackle is, uh, you know, where he'll likely play this year a lot. Um, and it was only actually 76 of his snaps. So, you know, about a third maybe of his snaps um, between a third and a half of his snaps. Um, last year and most of his a lot of his uh you know results came from there so that's exciting so all right we'll jump into so that's the pass side so next we got rush side uh run plays are a lot harder to measure uh the value of player um i i find measuring the value of player uh, the impact a player has on it uh especially defensive line there's so many moving pieces uh so what i tried to do was uh, was limit the run plays uh to when uh, the player was involved. So we'll define what involved means, but um, basically the concept is I don't want to talk about a run play where the run went to the opposite side of the defensive line because they, they didn't really get impact. You know, they didn't play a role in that play. So, um, so I don't want to be measuring them. So what I did was first defined a gap responsibility for the players. So, um, you know, you can see the circles here. Um, the the middle gap, uh, and these gaps were provided um, in the data by SIS uh, to kind of de describe where the run was directed. 
So it was either a middle run, an A gap run, a B gap run, C gap, or D gap run. Um, so I kind of determined if the run was headed towards a gap that the player was responsible for based on this uh, kind of alignment. So, um, so then we'll jump into kind of the next step in my logic and, and thought process here. And this is kind of a you know, multi-step process uh, to, to decide whether the player was involved. So the first step was whether they went, whether the run went towards them. So this is where we, if it went to a gap that there was, you know, their, their gap, that's towards them. So if it went towards in, into one of their gaps, the answer is true that it was, it went towards them. They were involved. The answer is yes. That's an easy one. So now we're going to talk about plays that, that were not uh, directed towards a gap they were directly responsible for. Uh, next, the data provided whether the running back used that gap or whether they bounced it out to somewhere else and changed direction. That requires so, some very good judgment on the part of SIS to determine what was the actual design gap. Yeah. Yep. And, and I'm sure, you know, it's only as good as the data that they have, you know, but, uh, but that was kind of the, you know, the data we were given for the competition and kind of what we played around with. So, I, so, um, but again, all this is information provided by SAS, which was, you know, half the fun of the, the competition is getting data that you wouldn't normally get to get to look at. So, um, so plays that went away from the defender and they stayed in that gap. So they use that design gap. Those I decided right away, the player is not involved, you know, that went away from them and stayed away from them. So if it went away from them, but then they, they changed direction and went to a different location, uh, then we went to the next level of determination. And um, if what I called play made, which means the player, the defensive player was actually involved in the, in the tackle, uh, whether it was an assisted tackle or a solo tackle, um, then they, uh, th then that was one category. If they weren't involved in the tackle, then even though the player changed direction, I couldn't tell whether they actually changed direction towards that next player. So this one wasn't as clear of a clear cut, but it's the best as I could do. Um, seemed like they bounced it towards them if they were involved in the tackle. So, um, so when they bounced it, when they went to a different direction, bounced it to a different hole, and the player was involved in a tackle, then we went and decided whether the EPA was greater than zero or not. Uh, what that was basically a measure of was whether it was near the line of scrimmage. Um, I didn't want to punish the defender for making a tackle down the field, you know, mm -hmm. on a play that wasn't designed towards them. So, you know, they shouldn't be punished for pursuing well. You know, make, yeah, exactly. So, so I kind of wanted to get ones that were near the line of scrimmage back towards them. So that's where this all is very, very challenging to kind of figure out which plays were actually involved, which plays the defensive line was actually involved in. So, um, so that's the logic I used. Same kind of concept um, when I determined the EPA. Uh, the only difference, uh, the big difference is that um, is if it went towards them and they ended up bouncing in a different direction, I capped the EPA at zero. So I didn't want to punish the defensive line if they stopped them from using the gap and the running back bounced in a different direction and someone else on the team didn't tackle, you know, didn't have maintained their gap responsibility. So, you know, I capped it at zero. They did their job. We'll call that a relative win so yep 
So that's the kind of the logic I used. So lots of different moving pieces, lots of things, whether you could discuss and everything like that. So, um, you know, you could spend a long time discussing what you wanted to do with run plays, but that's kind of the model I used. So let me just stop you for a second, Dan, because yeah. I, this is an important part of modeling that's very difficult. Any kind of modeling, you're simplifying things. You can be a glasses half empty guy, and it's really easy to do this. Look at this and say, well, what if, what if, what if? That doesn't make any sense. That doesn't mean you throw away or discount the entire model. You try and pick out what's good about, about the model Dan's presented for it and tell us what part of the story you think it tells us. And that's why I think some of these Raven slides are so great because you know, we have our own visual memories of this and, and the data collected and whatnot that, that we've examined and looked at in other, in other places. And we can make sense of the game a little bit more. So I'd, I you know, encourage you, particularly on the run thing, where I think um, this model is, is, is um, a start. I wouldn't say it's a, you know, providing the right. final answer on, on run defense here, but try and, try and pick out what's good about the model in terms of what you can learn from it and, and, and what really has value. But the, it's very easy just to beat the crap out of somebody else's model and, and not get value from that examination. Right. Yeah, I think the, the biggest thing I kind of took away from the model that I tried to develop was limiting it to plays that they were involved. You know, I think that's kind of one of the challenges we faced looking at run plays is, is targeting involved plays. So that's that's one of the things I really tried to do. Um, so looking at the actual kind of league-wide by player, um, as you'd expect, um, or as you may expect on a per snap basis, the nose tackle uh, were, were involved or um, had high impacts. Um, so then again, this is based on actual results. So the impact that they had to the EPA for their for the plays that they were in. So um, the nose tackles were generally in, um, uh, and and you know for inside play, inside runs, and ones that they stopped on generally resulted in uh, you know lower EPA. So um, so they were kind of the most valuable. Uh, results based on runs. So that's kind of what I saw. Um, their mean on the impact on EPA was above all the other positions, 75th percentile. So they were significantly higher on impact to EPA than any other position. Uh, the outside defensive line had the lowest impact per snap. Um, I think a lot of that is because uh, run plays up the middle where they stay there kind of have a lower range of you know, upside, uh, I would say. Um, that's kind of speculating a little bit. Um, say, say that again. So runs that go to the outside. Run to the go to the outside can break for a large, large gain a lot easier. In my, This is kind of speculating, I guess. I don't have pure numbers um, to, to back this up. But um, my guess is that runs to the outside um, break more often than runs to the middle. Mm. Uh, so, So my guess is that, you know, because we're talk, we're including primarily runs that went to towards a player and stayed towards that player. That's kind of the biggest group when we looked at the involved plays, is runs that went towards you and stayed towards you. So that that the largest bucket is when you run to the outside and stay to the outside. So um, so it kind of lines up. I think that the outside uh, players were. Um, were kind of dinged or, or had the largest, uh, the lowest EPA per snap. So, um, so I think, you know, you can look at, uh, again, 
the breakdown by positions, I think one of the interesting, couple of interesting things here um, is that these these graphs are generally not um, right skewed. They're actually kind of normally just or you know center distributed um, for the most part. Um, I think that's kind of a little bit based on the the way that the model was set up, driven that way. I think because you've got positive and negative EPAs versus um, generally the other ones were just positive values. Uh, I think defensive tackle is interesting. There's a clear kind of upper tier of players, um, you know, uh, around the, the seven to 10 range. So that was kind of an interesting thing that jumped out. Um, and then we'll jump into the Ravens and see how they kind of did. Uh, well, the first thing that jumps out is excited to have Calais Campbell on the team. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, he was a stud when it came to run defense. Um, really valuable um, at stopping stopping the run last year, so that's exciting. Unfortunate to lose uh, Chris Wormley, but um, you know, excited to have Clayus. So then you've got the big guys in the middle: Brandon Williams, Michael Pierce. Um, interesting to have Jalen Ferguson up there as the first outside guy. Um, so I thought that was kind of an interesting to see thing to see. Um, this run defense definitely improved down the stretch, and you've got only down the stretch data. So, yeah. your stuff doesn't have week four, week five, week six when he when he probably wasn't playing as well. Look at that right. Cleveland game. The big outside runs that that kind of you know gash, gash for big yardage. Yeah, but this it, is it only does, those last ten. So it does have the San Francisco game, and he looked bad in the San Francisco game. And I thought he played played better after that. So that's uh, yeah. that's really nice. Yep. And uh, Derek Wolf looks like he's pretty solid. I didn't know how he kind of would stack up run defensive-wise, but he looked pretty good. Uh, you know, something that I was kind of surprised to see was uh, was Matt Judon, Judon down near the bottom. And uh, I think um, looking at a couple of the plays, he got uh, a couple of run outsides that, that really got away from him and, you know, break tackles and broken tackles and things like that that kind of got away that uh, that really kind of skewed and, and hurt his EPA per per snap. So, um, just to be clear, this does not include the playoff loss to Tennessee because he really missed the tackle on that third and one play that went for sixty six yards. <laughs> yes, he did, um, but it does not include that. Nope, it it is only weeks uh, whatever nine to seventeen. So, um, but but it, but I think he he has some uh, room for improvement on on run plays to the outside. I think he really valuable rushing and dropping into coverage, but I think. Room for improvement on, on run plays. So is what I would take away from this. So, all right. Um, that was the first two questions. Third question, we're not going to dive into too much. Lots, lots of information already. Just real high level. What scenarios would impact defensive line position values? Just kind of a couple things to think about. Like we talked about the value of these different positions. What scenarios would, would that change? So one, win probability of the defensive team. So you know, when you are way ahead, you kind of expect the, the other team to do different things. So you kind of would have different, um, you know, different player, different techs playing for those snaps. So, you know, it, it kind of naturally goes with what um, defensive package you have in, uh, what what positions are going to be um, valuable. Because remember, we, we talked about value as the opportunity. So being in there with those packages drives uh, drives the value. Uh, what the base defensive package is. So um, if, if you play a 3-4 three, or 4-3, four, four, you've got different techs that are going to be there more often. Um, if you um, 
if you um, don't play your base package very often, then you've got, you know, for sure have left less uh, inside guys, you know, playing on the field. So they have less opportunity to, to provide value. Um, lots of other scenarios that we look that I kind of delve in and uh, delve into and, and thought about a little bit was, um, you know, opponents offensive uh, type. So whether they're a high pass offense or a run offense, you know, that could drastically uh, change the value for a given game. What the weather was like, that's another one. So lots of different things that can impact this. Um, so one thing I, I, I kind of forgot to mention is, you know, we're going to post these the slides and, you know, when I did the full presentation for this, for this, um, this competition, went into all these different scenarios in much more detail and tons of slides, tons of information. So if you're interested, just let me know uh, and, and I can send you some links to that, to the full blown, <laughs> full so blown. This was the short version yeah, of the exactly. presentation. <laughs> yeah, that, that said, I mean, we can take, take a moment to chuckle about that, but the, the, the fact of the matter is, in order to really understand this at the proper depth, I think, I think Dan had to go through what he did here to really explain it. It's not a simple concept. You know, you're talking about a range of opportunities, defining the potential value of the position. That's a, it's just a complex topic that takes time. Um, it would take even longer if you're explaining it to a room of actuaries because they'd be asking tons of questions <laughs> yeah, exactly. as, as they went through it. Uh, yeah, you know that well. And I think the, the, then the Ravens data that's thrown in here really provides a storytelling layer here, which is, is very applicable to our favorite. Yeah, it's it's a it's good that you had these two things together, and we can and we can go through this. But yeah, we appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, you know, and lots of different uh, limitations. Uh, you know, changes in scheme would change things. Players aligning, like we talked about, multiple techniques. So when you think about from a GM's perspective, definitely different. You got to think about the combination of these values and how they fit into real players. So real world is different than looking at the techs since since no one plays one tech <laughs> for the most part at least so um you know talked about all the kind of limitations on the talent evaluation um you know these models definitely have holes and happy to talk through any suggestions anyone has but uh it's fun kind of running through the, these concepts so um and that's uh that's kind of the end of it so there's a lot of good things about this game and one thing i want to just help people if you're considering your own model building first of all First of all, you probably are not going to start at the kind of depth that Dan went into. But what I'm going to tell you is be bold as a modeler. Really try to do something that somebody else hasn't. Solve a problem in a way somebody else hasn't tried to solve that same problem. And you're going to, you may not come up with a model that is directly hitting on the mark, but you may come up with a model that teaches us that one new thing that we didn't know before by just mm -hmm. examining it and say, well, it's not that, or it is true in this particular situation or whatever it might be. Um, that's, a, that's a really good thing to do. And Dan, I, this is just, is a very impressive effort. You obviously had a lot of data to work with, but still not a comprehensive amount of data for a full season. And, and you were able to do a lot with that in, in terms of making choices about how to value things and whether or not to count things in terms of these run plays, uh, you know, how you were doing the counting with regard to the, the, uh, the, the past snaps and the past counting statistics and whatnot is just, this is an extremely impressive effort. Um, if you're, you've been here for the whole almost two hours of this presentation, we appreciate it. And, uh, and we hope that uh, it was worth something to you, Dan, uh, any other overarching comments on being in the competition or how it turned out? Do you, do you know anything more other than uh, about where you placed or anything? Uh, so I don't know where I placed. I, uh, you know, they published some summary of, um, of the different 
different submissions and um, you know I was mentioned in that so that was kind of great got some got some really great feedback from the SIS team so I really appreciate that really just appreciated the whole opportunity from the SIS team and, and the great competitions. So I'm really, really enjoyed the opportunity there and looking forward to more. Uh, gonna be, you know, try and participate in, in future ones because enjoyed the process. Um, I'll also kind of attach it out. Um, SIS published all the different, um, different studies that were done by, by a really large number of really talented folks. Um, so if you're interested, you can check out the other presentations and some other ways to an, analyze this, some really great creative approaches. So highly recommend that uh, if, if you're looking, looking for some more information. So, um, so real great competition with some real great entries from, from a lot of really talented folks. So I, I don't know if, if you've seen, the, I think it was the big data bowl results, but I may be wrong, maybe another competition uh, was won by two Austrians this year who've, who don't really watch football. Yep. And, yeah, and uh, well, <laughs> go ahead. Yeah, now they got now they got jobs. So and <laughs> and their uh, their approach is used by ESPN now. So um, real successful. Big Data Bowl has been real successful in um, bringing analytics to you know even more to the forefront and getting a lot of people opportunities for jobs. I think a lot of the finalists were able to break into the uh, you know the office, you know the NFL team offices. So that's kind of a, a a fun story, a success story. So something yeah. you consider, Dan, if you got the offer? Oh yeah. I think uh, you know, it definitely would be something to consider. I think it'd be it'd be for sure fun. So you know there you go. A lot of interest in football and math. So two of my big interests. So <laughs> all right. Well we're we'll have this out on the website and we'll have the full slide deck and the the more limited slide deck. So I would encourage people to try and go through this with the slides. And if you have the slides on, on one side and the audio on the other, you'll be able to kind of follow through. And I was actually doing this during the thing because I'm not looking at dance slides here. But I see my head turned, I'm looking at my other computer and going through the slides at a different, you know, looking at different ones. Um, it's very helpful to be able to do that and to go back when necessary to understand what the definition of something was. So, uh, and, Again, thank you for spending the time with us on this. We'd love to hear from you again your next uh, time you do a study, and we'll certainly have you on. I appreciate having you on for the What's That Defense commentary. I thought that was a lot of fun earlier this year. And uh, uh, we also had you on for the, uh, the uh, first down run thing we talked about earlier. So, uh, um, Yeah. Yeah, but it's been great. Really enjoyed these opportunities to, to talk with you and, and, and kind of talk out with, uh, with the Ravens flock out there. So really enjoyed it. All right. All right, folks, that's it for this episode. And uh, Josh, do you want to plug 336 while we're here? I mean, it's, it's baseball season, so go check out Section 336. Lots of Orioles talk. Uh, we recorded on Monday before the Marlins series, so the most recent episode is very positive. <laughs> the next one will not be. So how many people out there, and I ask you just in a very self-effacing way to think back, because this is, this is probably going to post in about another week or so, but so you'll have a little time to reflect on this, but how many of out there with the with the Orioles at five and three, were thinking the Marlins are decimated by COVID. They're going to come to town. If the Orioles could win four straight, I'm going to suddenly believe. <laughs> and now there may be people believing still that the number one draft pick is a possibility. Well, the Ravens used to do this too, where they play up to the competition that comes to town. And that's what the Orioles have done so far this season play well against good teams and there you go so 
All right, so check out filmstudybaltimore.com to get all the slides, get this video. If you're listening to, if you're trying to listen to this audio while driving around in your car, just stop right probably, now. <laughs> you probably just want to wait and get yeah. the slides for this episode. Yeah. So. And in fact, if you're stopping right now and you got to this point, you're already it's already too late. We should point. probably Good put point. something like that up front. I'll, I'll, I'll. Yes, I'll put a warning ahead of the recording uh, about that. Good idea. To give you a heads up. So, all right, guys, we'll have a good evening. Birdland Sports. For fans, by fans. Find more great shows like this at birdlandsports.com. Introducing the Lowe's List for Innovation. While our aisles are filled with innovative products, we've selected our favorites just for you. Like the exclusive Whirlpool washer with industry-first two-in-one removable agitator. We love this washer because you can customize any load. And with other smart features to streamline your laundry routine, this product is a must-have for families. Shop the full Lowe's list of top picks at Lowe's.com. Lowe's, home to any budget, home to any possibility. U.S. only. Some cars are comfy on the inside, but don't have power on the outside. And some cars have the horsepower, but none of the comfort. I used to think there weren't any cars that were the total package. But that all changed when I got my Honda SUV. It's rugged and sophisticated. And right now, Honda has deals on the entire Honda SUV lineup. CRV, HRV, Pilot, Passport, you name it. So if you're looking for a car that's the total package, the only place you'll find it is at your local Honda dealer. Hurry before they're all gone. This country was built on a distinctly American work ethic, but today, work is in trouble. We've outsourced most of our manufacturing to other countries, and with that, we sent away good jobs and diminished our capability to make things. American Giant is a clothing company that's pushing back against this tide. They make a variety of high-quality clothing and activewear, like sweatshirts, jeans, dresses, jackets, and so much more. All made right here in the USA, from growing the cotton and adding the final touches. So when you buy American Giant, you create jobs for seamsters, cutters, and factory workers in towns and cities across the United States. And it's about more than an income. Jobs bring pride. Purpose. They stitch people together. If all that sounds good to you, visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com with promo code STAPLE20. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.